what's happening everybody and welcome back to another episode of rapping with reef bum i'm your host keith Urkelhammer. so today on the live stream i welcome kenneth wingertner from hydrospace llc what's happening there kenneth hello everybody so kenneth is a lifelong aquarius with diverse interests ranging from cold water marine aquariums to ponds and all right i'm gonna i'm gonna mess this up paludariums is that how you pronounce that paludariums 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 paludaria okay. if you want to be okay ultra technical okay uh, since completing studies at the University of Oregon and the Aquarium Science Program, he has practiced aquaculture in laboratories, hatcheries, uh, with a focus on live microfeed. He currently resides in Colorado, where he operates the microbial aquarium product company, Hydrospace LLC. But before we start chatting with Kenneth, I want to thank the sponsors for the live stream, both Bulk Resupply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream. And I also appreciate all you folks out there that are tuning in right now for um, being in the stream. And as always, please drop your comments and questions in the chat. Try to work those uh, into the conversation. So, Kenneth, man, your your company is pretty well known in the uh, the hobby for selling the microbial products, especially the um, purple non-sulfur bacteria. Can you kind of just give the folks that are not familiar with the company uh, um, a broad stroke overview of what you guys are all about and why you started the company? Yeah. Um, first of all, it's all we sell right now is purple non-sulfur bacteria. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to wander outside of that or at least outside of the realm of photosynthetic bacteria. Uh, a person could actually spend their whole lifetime studying these organisms. They're so complex and there are so many uses for them. Uh, initially, I was interested in them when I was working, um, developing products for LG Barn. Uh, basically, we had some problems to solve uh, increasing production for copepods, specifically our, our uh, uh, Calphigriopus, and they wanted to make them redder and bigger and all that. And then there were also some bioremediation issues. And I happened, just in doing some research, I found uh, just a little passage about these bacteria in the third volume of the Reef Aquarium uh, by Julian Sprung and Charles DeBolt. And uh, basically, they're just, they're, heter they're photoheterotrophs, and they have a, a been used for decades in commercial aquaculture. Uh, but specifically, they're really rich in carotenoids, which would have solved the problem of uh, reddening up those uh, tig tigriopus pods, and then also their heterotrophs, so they could have cleaned up all the organic matter in the uh, cultures, and then as they grow from that, become a food for the copepods themselves. So uh, long story short, we were um, doing a lot of stuff at that time. Uh, that was when Algae Barn was literally just doing pods and phyto mm. um, in, a, in like in a garage. Uh, so they were they had a lot of work to do. We had, didn't even have macroalgaes yet. So that project, the purple non-sulfur bacteria, just got pushed to the wayside. And uh, a year or two later, when they moved down to Commerce City, which is like an industrial area outside of Denver, uh, I opted not to move down there and instead stayed up here in nice, pretty Boulder County, or that's where I was at the time, <laughs> and uh, started. I was so interested in these bacteria by then. Um, once I found out a little bit of what you could do, I kept researching them and discovering they had more and more uses. 
and the efficacy uh, was so well documented in um, uh, aquacultural science journals and other places that I was convinced they had a place in our industry. So um, I uh, had a kind of a, I'm a biologist uh, by training, but not a microbiologist necessarily. So I had to kind of do a little bit of crash course in microbiology so I could learn how to uh, locate and isolate these organisms and start playing with them. So I was literally out in a cabin in the woods for two, three years <laughs> uh, <laughs> up in the mountain, uh, Rocky Mountains um, get some with good, limited water resources. and Get some good thinking done there. Yeah. So it, that's how that's how Hydrospace began. We, we launched in uh, 19 and it's just been pretty steady growth by then. A lot of people have been uh, sold thousands and thousands of units by now. And um, by and large, it's been a very positive response. So you mentioned algae born. How did you actually get started in the aquarium industry? Oh boy. Uh, so uh, I'd been keeping aquariums for a long time. I mean, since I, I like to say since the Reagan, middle of the Reagan administration, <laughs> I have, I've had some kind of aquarium since then. The long, longest I've ever been without a fish tank was when I was literally living on a fishing boat. Um, I started uh, as a teenager in the eighties, uh, late eighties at my first, uh, uh, fish store job. So that was my foray into the industry. And uh, I quit that job because I refused to cut my mullet. So <laughs> it was it was a couple of years before I got back in, but that's that was like mid 90s. And by then uh, um, the, the saltwater aquarium hobby had really grown. And uh, again, thanks to the, the re I think uh, the reef aquarium series by uh, uh, Sprung and DeBalt had a lot to do with that, had a lot to, to do with our success in the store there. Uh, that's where I started selling corals there around like 95. What, and, uh, what, what, uh, what uh, town or city was that in? <laughs> Mandan, North Dakota. Wow. And if anyone's even heard of it, I'd love to see that, <laughs> uh, that in the comments. Um, yeah, I remember my some of my first, uh, back when I got into saltwater fish in the 80s, uh, I literally had to come and pick in, pick up the fish when they came in because none of the dealers in Bismarck across the river, the capital city, uh, even had saltwater tanks to carry uh, any marine livestock. At one point, my mom drove me all the way across when I was a kid, all the way across the state to Fargo, just to come back with a damselfish. <laughs> That's dedication. So we got a couple of comments here. Mm -hmm. uh, Vivid Creative Aquatics, never cut your mullet for a job, laugh out loud. And Jason Langer, uh, stand up for your right to wear a mullet. There you go. So, uh, and that we we got people advocating for uh, folks with mullets, rights for mullets. There, you know. Um, so, all right, man. We're we're talking right before the live stream, and it, and, and it's pretty much a uh, it's it's like you and your wife that uh, run this uh, company, and and you guys shot a uh, a video for me that I'm I'm starting to play right now, and it's kind of like a a tour of the facilities here. I don't know if you want to kind of. Um, talk through this even though you probably can't see it. Ooh, that's right, I should have been on. Well, it starts out in the kitchen. Uh, I'm just guessing if I remember the walkthrough. Uh, it starts out in what we call the kitchen with the sink and um, you'll see the big uh, hello, kettle hello, on the table. Hello, reef bump. <laughs> <I like that. laughs> um, so that's, uh, yeah, so there's the big kettle and that's where we, actually everything begins and ends in the kitchen because that's where we brew and then that's where we bottle. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, very energy consumptive. You can actually, we, some of the, that's a good place or to, you know, where we, we did all the, redid all the electricity, everything's up on the ceiling, as you can see the outlets and everything, having worked in a lot of out, uh, aquaculture facilities and stuff. So kind of got to build this the way I wanted. Um, it's all temperature control. That's what you get the reflectix all over the walls and ceilings. Gotcha. It's, yeah. looks like a space age padded room or something, but, uh, uh, pretty small, obviously crowded for a, you have to buy a lot of packaging materials. I could see, you see the wall of, of boxes and bottles yeah. and stuff going through, uh, just in order to get that stuff at a reasonable per piece price. So it, we're real crammed down there. Um, but by then you're probably getting into the grow room. Uh, yeah. God, I wish I could have pointed out the the cubes one by one. I would have said what was in them, but you'll notice that there are a lot of different colors. Yes. Uh, so what you're seeing is different species at different stages of cultivation. Okay. And uh, so they're going to have a lot of different colors because they are photosynthetic bacteria. They're loaded with carotenoids and bacterial chlorophyll. Um, so mainly oranges and pinks and you need some red and uh, even like fuchsia colors but uh, they uh, sit on those racks they're just they're just shop lights uh, these guys as we were discussing earlier are not picky about lighting bacteria uh, so we these particular bacteria yeah they can adapt so um, the, the particulars I mean the shop lights I, I tell people how to grow it so I, I'm, I'm not there's not a lot of proprietary stuff there in that respect um, but we do have them on a photo period. Uh, the reason for that is it encourages um, the production of these substances. It's actually the same substance that bio pellets are made out of. Hmm. It's basically like an energy reserve for bacteria. So when they're in the bottle, they can rely on that. It extends the shelf life, uh, probably increases their survivability when they're at first added to uh, an aquarium as well. But uh, having a dark period encourages the production of that organic substance. Um, so yeah, and then at some point you can see the kits up there too. I got a little shot of the, the, uh, the homegrown kits. You can <clears throat> the home so you can grow the stuff yourself. Yeah. So basically, everything we do there can be scaled down for the home aquarist, and uh, we do offer. It's the only thing we sell direct is the homegrown kit. So that's like a bulk package for those who similar to growing your own phytoplankton. Uh, for anybody that wants to have access to this stuff in bulk, one of those kits treats over eight thousand gallons. Gotcha. Right. And there it is, the PNS um, home, grow, home Grow. Um So, um, Vivid Creative Aquatic. Some jugs look like they are under pressure while others look somewhat deflated. Is that a result of the growth process? Uh, yeah. So, a lot of those that look deflated, they're probably the clear ones. And those are just sitting in like slightly bleachy water. They're ready to go. Um, we actually, you'll see a lot more of those unusual because we're pretty low inventory right now. Um, like I was saying to you earlier, we just got hit real hard by some of the big box companies that are already prepping for like uh, Black Friday. And I was astounded, but yeah, we, we've been working so hard already for the for the big season. So um, Kenneth, talk to us about the uh, the main products that you guys are selling. So we, we see the uh, the PNS Home, home Grow. Um, the uh, I know there's Pro Bio, right? Mm -hmm. um, just yep. talk to us about the different product uh, line and what people can um, get from you guys in terms of the bacteria. Sure. The I would start by saying that 
as far as I'm concerned, uh, these bacteria are most useful as a food. Um, there's that bioremediation aspect, but um, they're really valuable as a food. They're extremely, a lot of bacteria can do the bioremediation thing, but. When you say bioremediation, um, are you talking about controlling nutrients is for, for that purpose? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. And in this case, because they're heterotrophs, also organic substances. So these guys can break down um, uh, detritus, for example. Uh, they, so they've been used in the pond industry as well because they are capable of digesting cellulose, which is kind of a big deal. Not a lot of bacteria possess the enzymes necessary to do that, lignocellulosic compounds. That's why cellulose is the most abundant biological material on earth. Um, basically wood, woody materials, okay. uh, right? That plants make their cell wall has a cellulose, well, as their cell wall, cellulose to give it rigidity. Anyway, it doesn't, uh, it's poorly degradable. And these guys can break that stuff down. So you'll see this in pond products to eliminate like leaf litter, uh, stuff like that. But similarly, they can break down detritus in an aquarium. A lot of the detritus being some of the last stuff to break down includes stuff like the cell walls of algae, for example. So we see people using this stuff and reporting that they um, have to replace their uh, filter socks less often, for example. Um, another thing is the comp. Uh, so if you have run a refugium, uh, a lot of those yellowing compounds yep. similarly are difficult to digest. And these guys can do that. They I've actually grown at these bacteria just on tannins before. So they're really good at that. Um, they can actually clarify your water, if you, particularly if you're running like a um, algae scrubber or something like that. Um, so good at nutrients, of course. Uh, they uh, are used in wastewater treatment for that. Um, but uh, they're, they're better at removing really high levels of nutrient, and then their effectiveness, effectiveness tapers off as you get closer and closer to bottoming out, which I guess may be a good thing. But if you're going for like the ultra low, they're not you know, they're, they help, but uh, like I said, they're, they're mainly useful as a food. So I like to think of them as a, a food that uh, doesn't, that rather than polluting the water, actually can clean it. So you're, you're talking about a coral food. And um, so how, how do the corals, so we know that corals do consume um, bacteria, right? Or, or explain it, Kenneth, in terms of, uh, you know, my understanding is that there's bacteria inside of um, corals, let's say SPS, that there's certain um, bacteria in, inside of the, uh, the corals themselves. And and um, those are the bacteria that are consuming the food and the, and the corals are then getting the, uh, the nutrition that way. Is that how it works? It's really complicated. Um, so not, much so that, that the coral... <laughs> no, unfortunately. <laughs> But job security for me, I guess, and coral biologists. Uh, so the they actually call the whole association between like a coral polyp and the zooxanthellae and all these uh, various um, microorganisms. They call the whole thing like a superorganism, the coral holobiont, um, because they're so uh, they almost act like a single organism. Um, like to start with the food, I guess they do eat even though they incorporate uh, these bacteria into their bodies, corals, um, they, they will eat them just like they do zooxanthellae. You know, they'll either expel or consume excess. Uh, and they're insanely nutritious. They're, they're uh, up to like 70% protein, always over like, you know, upper 40s, 50% protein. So, and then they don't have the cell wall like an algae, that's cellulose, which is fiber. Mm -hmm. So they're very digestible. 
They have a lot of B vitamins, vitamin E, and then of course those carotenoids, which are uh, antioxidants. So um, it uh, slows the aging process that all those free radicals, it would, by the way, um, that's really important in like a highlight coral, like a, a lot of our SPS corals, because when uh, a coral is really photosynthesizing, uh, they, the photooxidants that are produced by the zooxanthellae are actually damaging to the coral itself. It, it damages the, corals, the coral polyps tissues. Um, so carotenoids, having a lot of carotenoids in their diet is really good for them. Um, and then they, they say that the, it's hypothesized anyway in one paper that the purple non because they're primarily anaerobic by the way, but they live in like areas of the gut. They find like little recesses within the coral uh, stomach mainly, or gastro, uh, gut uh, that is uh, uh, anaerobic. And then they kind of live there and uh, have direct associations with the zooxanthellae, which is even more interesting and maybe more important ecologically. So coral reefs are nutrient poor environments, particularly nitrogen. They're usually nitrogen limited, not phosphorus. They're, corals are well adapted to nitrogen starvation. They're not well adapted to phosphorus starvation. That's where you usually see bleaching and stuff. Um, but the reason they're adapted to nitrogen starvation is because uh, they evolved in these environments. They've always been nitrogen starved. That's why the water's clear. Um, when Charles Darwin first went to Tahiti, he noticed that the waters were crystal clear. And to him, it looked like it was like an ecological desert hmm. that, because everything was so infertile. And he wondered why the the uh bear with me here this is really interesting why and really important uh he and he wondered why the water was so clear and yet the coral reefs there were so productive this environment was just you know rich and uh it's one of the few things he wasn't able to figure out in his lifetime and ever since that biologists termed that darwin's paradox and uh in the 70s uh this uh expedition symbios uh i think it was called um discovered the reason why corals can be so productive in these nitrogen-limited environments. And it's because of nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Nitrogen-fixing bacteria basically do the reverse of denitrification. What they do is they take nitrogen gas and they convert it into ammonia. So that's how new, nit new uh, uh, nitrogen, bioavailable nitrogen is introduced into an ecosystem. Um, and these, and these bacteria are very competitive on a coral reef because it's a nitrogen-limited environment. They're able to compete really well with other microbes. And indeed, they live inside of the corals and have these direct associations with the zooxanthellae. So jump back into that. Uh, basically, what like Rhodosudomonas does, Rhodosudomonas palustris, the uh, bacteria that's in actually all of our products, but um, PNS ProBio is just Rhodosudomonas, Rhodosudomonas palustris. Uh, that species is found in corals, and it even the abundance of that species within corals changes uh, seasonally in some cases, depending on uh, nitrogen availability, believe it or not. Um, but what they do basically is, you know, algae, there are no algae, only certain bacteria can fix nitrogen, and uh, no algae or anything like that, so they're very important. Uh, basically, they provide uh, nitrogen, bioavailable nitrogen, to the zooxanthellae, and then the zooxanthellae can be more productive, and that benefits the coral. And then, of course, these bacteria feed off the coral's wastes. 
Gotcha. A very complicated uh, process going on there. I, you know, I guess one one thing that um, you know I hear in terms of skepticism, in terms of dosing bacteria on a regular basis to an established reef tank is, um, you know, why do you need to do that? I know um, when I was talking to you about, you, you had sent me some stuff for um, for my uh, my systems and and. Um, and so, you know, I had a bunch of questions in terms of the, uh, the, the dosing regime. And, you know, my understanding is that when you're dosing a bacteria, whether it's your stuff or, or, or another company's uh, bacteria, that it should be done on a regular basis. And I think the skeptics that I've, you know, talked to, including on the show, have said, you know, why is there a need to dose bacteria? Because bacteria can multiply so quickly once they're added to the, uh, to the tank. So, yeah, go ahead, man debunk that uh, theory in terms of why you don't have to dose bacteria on a regular basis. Yeah. Now I can't speak for other companies or, you know, the bacteria they make. I can't even speak for companies that make the same type of bacteria that I make if there are any or will be any, because even those will be different products because of the culture media that they use and all that. But, and even the strains, uh, but, uh, um, our bacteria, so rhodosudomonas, the question shouldn't be will it will it live in my tank or not the question should be do i will my tank benefit from this or not right so if it doesn't survive that doesn't make it not beneficial when we add calcium to our tanks it gets depleted so does that mean oh well what's the point of adding calcium to our tanks right <laughs> it's it's a weird line of thinking so the question should be should these bacteria be in my tank if I want it, if I want the microbiome to look like a natural microbiome? Uh, researchers down in Australia are actually, they've been really ahead in this field. Uh, I think James Cook University, there's a paper by um, Professor Tout, Jessica Tout. They look at uh, different niches within a coral reef, a healthy coral reef in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, Heron Island Reef, I believe. And uh, uh, Acropora, can't remember which species, but it's Acropora. They were looking at specifically, they were looking at the mucus, the water column, the sediments everywhere. Uh, and in all of those purple bacteria generally show up a lot. And there's only like the top 18 species, genera. And uh, I mean, there might be hundreds or even thousands of genera on a coral reef of, of bacteria, right? These guys are in the top, multiple purple bacteria species are in the genera or in the uh, top 18. That would include um, Rhodosunomonas, Rhodospirulum, and Rhodobacter, all of which we have in our products. So um, it's like, do you want do you want your microbiome to look like a natural reef so it functions ecologically like a natural reef? If you do, then you want to have these bacteria that not in there. Now it may be true. Uh, Dr. Tim pointed this out on your show before. He's 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 looked at some uh, tests from Aquabiomics before that actually suggest that. Um, purple non-sulfur bacteria tend not to survive. They tend not to persist in uh, the typical aquarium. And uh, I, I believe that's correct. Why, 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 why uh, don't they uh, persist? Like some bacteria do uh, multiply rapidly, um, is my understanding. Mm -hmm. But why would that particular bacteria not be uh, sustainable in a, uh, in a reef aquarium? One would be... Um, Maybe not the main reason, but one reason would be that uh, we don't have uh, 
relative to a, a natural coral reef, we don't have enough anaerobic microhabitat, especially nowadays that people don't like uh, deep sand beds as much as we once yeah. did. Um, so these bare bottom tanks aren't really um, hospitable for uh, anaerobic bacteria. And then the second, the other component would be competition with other bacteria. So these guys can live in an aerobic environment, um, though not photosynthetically. Can, can you just quickly explain aerobic versus anaerobic in terms of the the, uh, the different uh, the difference between the two, just for us uh, non scientists? Yeah. So um, an aerobic environment is obviously just one that uh, where there's some oxygen present. Anaerobic is uh, where it's lacking. Yeah. Earth. At uh, three and a half billion years ago, Earth was completely anaerobic when these organisms evolved. Uh, and uh, they had a lot of the, so the uh, descendant of these bacteria, actually, these photosynthetic bacteria is cyanobacteria. It was cyanobacteria that changed the Earth's atmosphere to make it oxygenated, right? Because they were the first uh, oxygenic phototrophs, um, the first uh, photosynthetic organisms that make where oxygen is a byproduct of photosynthesis. So um, a lot, that was, there was a great extinction event actually, and a lot of those microbes disappeared, but these guys survived because they were able to adapt to um, an aerobic environment. Uh, oxygen is still um, poisonous to a lot of microbes that are obligate anaerobes. So there you have your obligate anaerobes that have to live in an anaerobic environment. And then you have your uh, fat cultivative uh, anaerobes that can live in both, but they prefer to um, live uh, where there is no oxygen. And indeed, these guys actually will, they can swim and they'll swim away from oxygen to move to a less oxygenated environment. So um, let's let's get back in terms of the, um, the, the benefit in terms of providing food for the corals. So how, what, what is a... Um, mm -hmm. How do we know that our corals need, you know, certain bacteria to to be healthy and to thrive? I mean, is is it um, is it something that can be tested via the aquabiomics to kind of see if we're deficient in certain, you know, um, bacteria? Is it the uh, the general look of a coral itself in terms of whether or not it's um, you know, not thriving, not growing? How how do we know that um, the addition of bacteria on a consistent basis will be beneficial to our corals, I guess, both uh, visually and potentially with data. Yeah. yeah. And they may, I mean, it may not be, it depends on the situation, right? Uh, it depends on the actual aquarium system. Uh, you know, as Dr. Meyer pointed out in your show of aquabiomics, uh, he's noted that there is a, a lack of, um, of uh, Pelagibacter in the aquariums. That's the most abundant um, marine bacterium on earth. Uh, and corals feed on that species or that, that group. So uh, say you run a UV sterilizer, you're killing a lot of those as he pointed out. So you're depriving your corals of, of a natural food source, an important one. Uh, so much so that corals actually produce substances in their mucus to bait them. Um, it just really quickly too, if anyone's wondering, that's that's how corals eat bacteria is in their they capture it in their mucus, um, and uh, bacterioplankton actually form the bulk of most corals' diet. By the way, it's not phytoplankton, 
uh, phytoplankton, I saw in one paper, was like point, they figured point, point 0.3 to 13% of a coral's diet is actually phytoplankton. Um, and a similarly small percentage is devoted to zooplankton, and the rest of it is bacterioplankton. How, um, so I've, I've um, been on and off with UV on my systems, you know, and, and I have SPS dominated um, dominated tanks so I've I've um, for the longest time never ran UV and I, and I did really well you know in terms of growing corals and then for a long stretch I, I ran UV everything was doing great then I stopped running UV um, I you know it was kind of hard to tell the difference between using UV and not using UV in terms of the benefits to the corals in my tanks over the years um, and you know others that run UV Report having you know great looking tanks in terms of the uh, the animals in their tanks. How how do you um you know get to that in terms of because I've I've run a lot of data with with um, with Eli and, and Aquabiomics and so I I have seen what you're talking about in terms of that particular bacteria not being present in my uh, in my system. So I guess the my long winded question to you is. Um, you know, given what you just said in terms of that bacteria and the importance of that bacteria and, and, and UV, is it critical to, um, or would you recommend running a reef tank without a UV sterilizer for that reason? Generally, yes. Um, uh, I don't see necessarily that they would cause a lot of harm. I've seen a lot of awesome, awesome tanks. Um, I still run UV, like on my I have like a goldfish, a fancy goldfish collection. I use UV. Um, it has its it has its uses. Um, uh, quarantine places like that, but on a, like a mature reef tank, I'd prefer not to have it. It just kills too much of the um, microplankton. Um, it, it's a it's one of those uh, it's a preference. But going back to should uh, so how is it, why is a bacteria a bacterial product good or you know if i have to keep using it well that's part of the reason you have to keep adding these things um uh, uh, uh planktonic bacteria are different than benthic bacteria sometimes there's some overlap depending on you know like some have multiple life stages and so forth but if you're killing all your bacteria in the water column then you're depriving your corals of a natural food source and there are other implications in like nutrient cycling and things like that that are equally important you just it disrupts the system completely uh whether it ends up being good or bad overall just depends on the specific uh situation are there are there any telltale signs you know in terms of physically you know looking observing your corals that you could tell that they're um missing that benefit of having certain bacteria in the system like would they be paler or less polyp extension those sorts of signs um, it would made it, so it's one of those things where you wouldn't necessarily know because you wouldn't know what happened if you hadn't used it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, uh, when it's, uh, benefits uh, as a probiotic, say it may have prevented, uh, a, a, a vibriotic infection that you would never know that if you hadn't used it, your whole tank would have got wiped out by STN. Um, so or our rtn so uh it's kind of hard to say uh, i wish there was more literature uh, about these bacteria uh, applied to corals in captive systems uh, there just isn't yet um all it's all implication based on every everything i 
everything I draw from is implication based on uh, observation of wild ecosystems. So uh, I just, it's all anecdotal, but there's a lot of it now, right? If you go on reef to reef for years now, there's, you know, just that one place, there are hundreds of people that have used this stuff and reported, um, you know, their experiences there. Just last night, I was in at, at an LFS. Uh, I didn't even know they carried my products. And I was talking to uh, one of the guys there, and he said he uses it on his corals. And he noticed uh, that, uh, or no, no, he, this, uh, he was talking to somebody who was using it. Uh, he said he uses it and likes it, but he, someone else was using it and he said that they had their corals same place under radions and, and uh, didn't do anything to them until they started feeding these, these bacteria to their corals and then all of a sudden they started to color up. And I didn't ask him specifically about coloring up, what colors or how much or anything like that, but he said they colored up. And uh, that, that could be, um, for example, because of the carotenoids. Um, I mean, it's all anecdotal, right? You can't, it's, it's impossible to say, but um, mainly the health benefits are just as like a food. Like I said, it's a live food. It's a natural live food. And it's one that actually uh, acts as a probiotic in the sense that it uh, inhibits disease organisms. Um, so Greg Carroll had a question. You mentioned some percentages before, and I think the question um, Greg is asking is, are those percentages based on the amount available of those foods to the coral and the reef with so many filter feeders abound? I, so I guess there's uh, there's variables in play, right? Tons, yeah, yeah. Um, so in that particular paper, that was their estimate. Um, it's just a number that came to mind, uh, 0.3 to 13%. Uh, and uh, which is obviously that's a pretty wide window, but I mean, 13% being the the highest estimate uh, in that from that one uh, researcher's perspective, 13% isn't all that much. By the way, that's not to say that phytoplankton isn't important uh, or, or beneficial in a coral's diet. It could it's one of those things where a small amount can go a long way um, because of the vitamins and especially fatty acids that are. Uh, available in uh, algae. Tross will be talking to you more about that later this month, I think. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, a little goes a long way there. I, there's actually a study that looks at these bacteria, Rhodosudomonas, the one that's in PNS ProBio. Uh, PNS ProBio, by the way, is my product placement. Uh, these bacteria, by the way, the, the red color, these are the carotenoids uh, mainly. So you can actually see it in there. That's how you know it. it's not just a bottle of RO water or something. Very distinctive carotenoids. Um, uh, but uh, there's a study, they used brine shrimp as a model organism, but it could be anything because we all need DHA, and a, you know, all these certain fatty acids that animals can't produce themselves. They have to get it in their diet. Um, but anyway, they used brine shrimp as a model organism and they found that using um, uh, Rhodosudomonas, uh, compared to phytoplankton, um, one wasn't necessarily better than the other. Uh, they were best used together because they're complementary. Again, because the bacteria is really high in protein, has the B vitamins, whereas the the uh, uh, the phyto has certain fatty acids that are really beneficial and um, other vitamins. So uh, yeah, they're better used in tandem. LG Barn knows that. that so that, that's why they, uh, LG Barn has a lot of, uh, they sell like in packages, these bacteria with their phytoplankton together in a lot of different like uh, bulk. 
I'm sorry, uh, like pack package deal things. Gotcha. Um, so you, um, Ken, if you mentioned uh, probiotic uh, before, I see uh, Mark uh, Clark says uh, comment about helps keep the coral bacteria. I'm assuming meant, meant bacteria keeps the coral's immune system strong. And uh, yeah, you, you you talked about um, bacteria as a probiotic and being able to kind of potentially cause a coral to fend off um, pathogens. Can you can you talk more about that? Yeah. Um... The big one would be Vibrio. Um, Vibrio is well known in our industry um, due to its ability to attack corals, especially a Vibrio corallidicus, and uh, as in the wild. And uh, these bacteria are the natural enemy of Vibrio. They have very similar niches. Um, with the these guys having the benefit of being uh, photosynthetic, maybe. Uh, the, where, but the big difference um, is that whereas uh, these bacteria are always beneficial to the coral, Vibrio is an opportunistic path, pathogen. So um, coral, Vibrio actually benefits corals in different ways, actually, in the wild. It's, it's usually just sitting there latent. It's, it's everywhere. Um, I've, I've, done, uh, <laughs> I've done aquabiomics tests of the uh, Reef Builders Studio, one of their systems, and it was rife with Vibrio. Hmm. Uh, it's always sitting there, but it waits for a coral to become compromised in some way, and then it attacks. What's really interesting is that uh, the Vibrio know to attack because when the coral, especially certain types of stress, will uh, disrupt the interaction between the coral and the zooxanthellae, and the result of that is a lot of um, DMSP production, which is a, it's a substance that reduces oxidative stress. Uh, uh, osmotic stress, I'm sorry. And uh, the Vibri Vibrio has evolved to sense that. And they're actually chemotactic to it, meaning that they swim towards sources of, of uh, DMSP. So that's how they use, they locate stress corals. Um, and then uh, that, that actually induces uh, changes in the Vibrio so that they become, uh, it, it makes them produce virulence factors. It increases their swimming speed. Uh, it does all kinds of weird stuff that turns them into all, all of a sudden they, they just, you know, turn into Brutuses on the coral, right? Uh, now, where do these corals come into play? Well, they compete with Vibrio for space. Uh, they also produce antibiotics such as streptomycin, which are known to have activity against uh, Vibrio. Um, they're, in fact, these bacteria have been widely used in the Pacific white shrimp industry specifically to uh, combat a particularly nasty uh, type of vibriotic disease in those shrimp. Um, so used as a probiotic in farms and stuff already with a well-known efficacy. But in the case of corals, you know, these bacteria are already resident on the coral so that they are just kind of fight off the vibrio in that way. And lastly, um, they actually metabolize DMSP. So um, they convert, it's, they can actually uh, disrupt that signal that goes out to the Vibrio telling them that this coral is stressed. So the, so the Vibrio isn't uh, made aware that the coral is stressed and that buys time for that coral to actually recover before it's inundated with these uh, now virulent uh, Vibrio cells. One example. So circling back, Greg Carroll says um, he's asking that question about the percentages because it could be ar argued that if 
um, you know, you feed more phyto, they could benefit even more, just like we know higher elk can uh, drive higher growth. Is, it, um, is, yeah. it, is there a balance yeah. in terms of uh, dosing bacteria and feeding, uh, you know, live phyto? You know, what, I guess, um, what, what are the benefits of doing both? I mean, obviously, they're both foods for corals. Yeah, they're nutritional benefits. So, you know, we can't live off of bread alone. You know, we have, we have to eat a, a varied diet so that we get all the stuff that we need and perhaps not too much of some things. Um, uh, but in nature, if we're trying to mimic nature, you know, you know, five, 10 percent of the of corals diet really should be phytoplankton. At that point, they're getting all of the, you know, um, fatty acids they need, for example, and things like that. There's no harm in, in over, you know, overdoing um, phytoplankton, just as there isn't any harm in overdoing these bacteria. You can we've done uh, 40, 40 time overdoses on uh, test tanks with uh, SPS, LPS, uh, zoanthids, um, softies, and uh, yeah, 40 time overdoses. So that's a whole bottle of ProBio in a 10 gallon tank. Hmm. And uh, the corals, it, it didn't seem, it didn't hurt anything. The corals actually just opened up like they were really uh, feasting. Is, is there any advantage to actually feeding live phyto versus non-live phyto um, products? I know people argue that. Um, I've used both. I've used a lot of paste in hatcheries before. And uh, it's convenient. I mean, that's the only reason it exists is because it's convenient. It doesn't exist because it's more nutritious. Definitely not. Um, but uh, I just, I, I like live phyto, you know. Um, it's uh it's just cleaner uh obviously and even if you just freeze something live you're going to lose um some nutritional value uh you know not much but uh you know anytime something isn't live and living it's not as good as it was before remember some some algae actually are motile and they'll swim around so they'll stay in the water column longer and uh they're doing things and secreting things that are telling the corals. Corals are selective filter feeders, so that you know they're they're sending out these cues that they're nutritious and palatable and and yummy. So that's you know it, I think more corals end up eating it, and it's actually more nutritious that way. But and it's certainly cleaner. So um, Sonny from ReefSite is uh, is asking a question, and I had him on the uh, the show. He's a big advocate um, of dosing um, bacteria. He he says, um, do we really need phyto? I have a very successful reef, and I've never dosed it in my current system. My system relies heavily on bacteria. So you know, I, I get a lot of people don't dose uh, phyto and have good looking tanks. Is is that something that um, you mentioned? It's a it's a it's a small percentage, I guess, in terms of what the corals would consume. So I guess. To answer that mm -hmm. question. Small but important. I mean, how much vitamin C by weight do we eat in a day? But we'll die without it horrifically. Um, so what I use, what I use phyto, yeah, every day personally. Um, but it depends on what, what's most important is that the corals are getting the things they need to live in their diet. So it depends on what else you're feeding them. There are a lot of uh, artificial foods now that include those things. But I would argue that live foods are by far the they're not the most convenient thing and they're not the cheapest, but they, it's, I mean, it's hard to argue that they're not ideal in terms of nutrition and, and also palatability, which matters, especially to selective filter feeders.
Um, I want to go back to a, a question that somebody asked earlier in the in the chat. I think it's an interesting uh, question. Thomas the Cat, I would like to know the effects of chemiclean and peroxide on the bacteria in the tank. I'm almost certain they kill um, back bacteria on a mass scale. So what, what are your thoughts, uh, Kenneth, in terms of using, you know, something to knock out cyano like chemiclean? And, um, you know, a lot of folks use it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's got its pluses and its minuses, but are those minuses, um, something that will catch up to you later? It could, <laughs> um, it's, I think it's a erythromycin, right? Yeah. Like a gram positive. You're wiping out like a potentially huge, I mean, it's extremely disruptive to your microbiome. So, I mean, you're just, you're throwing dice. I mean, we don't really know what... I suppose in extreme cases, uh, maybe it's like as a last-ditch effort um, to use something like that. I can definitely like see service company techs wanting to, you know, wanting like a quick fix. They don't want to be joking around when they have a client that, especially like at a business or something. But uh, I don't like I don't like anything like that. Ozone, anything that's going to kill the the microbiota. Um, uh, it's usually just hiding the problem anyway and not right not actually right. fixing it, it. it it's a band-aid on the problem I, I guess you know something that you know some some things that people do do when they dose something like chemiclean is that um they will dose a crap load of bacteria to try to replenish that bacteria that potentially can get wiped out by that um that product sure <laughs> i mean well i mean i yeah. we don't really know what we're it's removing theory, so right? what should yeah what should we know back to add back i mean it's kind of hard to do so you know like people people have used this you know my products specifically after treatments like that to replenish bacteria beneficial bacteria in their aquarium and i'm like okay that's cool because you're adding something beneficial but um if you wipe out you know hundreds of species i mean they're I mean, you can't add all this back without, you know, maybe some live rock, live sand. Um, there's a different, you know, so uh, that actually is an interesting, so people often, there's this debate, should I use bottled bacteria or live rock? And, uh, when, and when discussing biodiversity, and uh, they're just two completely different things, right? So with, with different purposes. So live rock, live sand, those things are good for adding diversity, obviously. Um, because they're going to have a lot of species on them. Some of them bad, maybe, but if you're just going for diversity, that's the way to do it. The reason to add a bottled bacteria is that you can add, in concentration, a known beneficial bacterium, and you can apply it for a specific purpose. So say you have really high phosphates, and you want a species that's a phosphate accumulator. In other words, a, a species that can take up more phosphate than it needs for its own metabolism uh these bacteria do that that they can be 15 uh was it 15 percent of their dry weight can be phosphate because they'll like take it up and store it for later use and then of course they get skimmed out and um you export tremendous amounts of phosphate that way cool then you use a species that can do that that's where ba bottled bacteria have their advantages like if you want to use them for a specific purpose or a food as in as in the case of uh, pns probio um, you mentioned um, skimming, and, and we talked about UV. If um, if you're dosing, you know, your products on a uh, on a daily basis, how how are you supposed to handle the uh, the skimmer and the UV? Should that stuff be turned off for like an hour after dosing? Should it be turned off for a longer period of time? Um, 
that could get difficult if you're using UV 24-7. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't use UV, but, uh, but some people do. And if they do, and you're just using this as a food, don't worry about it. I mean, so if you irradiate these bacteria, they're still flowing through the system. The corals will eat them, and it doesn't really matter. What, right? So what, what percentage do you think would get um, irradiated by the UV? Well, that would depend on the turnover rate of your UV unit, right? But um, and then how fast it takes to for the corals to eat the, you know, I, I guess you know, like if you ever overdose phyto in your tank, something that's really, you know, that's conspicuous green color, and some people see that clear up in an hour. Um, you know, it just it, it just depends uh, if you're using it. So, say you're trying to seed the tank, like uh, with these bacteria, with the hope that they'll live in say like a bio anaerobic bio medium or deep sand bed or something uh i saw one study that saw so rhodocytomonas was immobilized in other words attached to uh, a substrate uh from its free swimming stage um it within 60 minutes so it depends on the turnover rate and then how much of the, of the uv unit and then how much you how much you're willing to lose so um, if you look at that and you're like, oh, I may lose half in an hour, uh, I might just double, t I might just uh, do a double dose then rather than turn off the UV, right? So, some, oh, go ahead. I was just, some people may not want to, don't like turning on, off their skimmer off and on um, for, you know, because it's inconvenient or, you know, they might have a pump that jams, you know, it gets irritated, you know, won't turn back on or something like that. But there are benefits to that anyway. Like if you just run it at night, um, for, uh, you have the added benefit of pH stabilization, I guess, but right. you know, like Dr. Tim, I think again, on your show, um, recommended doing that, just having like a intermittent, you know, uh, like a, like a skimming period each day out of each day, like just running it at night or whatever. And then that would preserve some of the bacterial plankton, um, because they, re they reproduce very quickly. You know, some of these will, they'll become great grandparents within 24 hours, right? <laughs> so that gives them enough time to reproduce during that off period where they're, you know, would, to, to maintain some kind of population. Would you say it's a safe bet to, if you're going to be dosing bacteria every day, to be turning your skimmer and UV off for like an hour after you're dosing? Is that a, a good rule of thumb or would you do it longer? I, you know, I just leave them on. Uh, I think, uh, and again, I keep referring to past, uh, guests on your show, but Sanjay was on talking about a, uh, um, he's a big skeptic of dosing bacteria. Yeah. yeah uh, and he's bought my stuff, but, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he did a study that seemed to indicate that skimmers do remove massive amounts of bacteria. But, um, when you press him about it, he'll say, well, I'm not really sure, you know, um, it is not sure is how, you know, so, uh, you know, how much is, it may depend on a lot of things. It certainly depends on the skimmer, the efficiency of the skimmer and the way you have in the settings and all that. But, uh, if you're removing some, I, I don't see where it's worth turning it off and on. It makes things harder. Um, these products, I'm, I'm not going to say they're cheap, but they're not that expensive. Um, if you throw it in and you remove a little, and a little bit of bacteria come out, I mean, that's totally fine. In fact, if you're using it for bioremediation, eventually anyway you want you want some of those bacteria to be removed by your skimmer anyway because that's how the the stuff they sequester gets exported in the first place right so again i, I would just run it on like a day and night thing if that were possible otherwise i just add a little extra product and call it good
Gotcha. Um, so let, let's talk, um, Kenneth, a little bit about the different products that you have and the different use cases. So um, PNS uh, substrate sauce. When, uh, mm -hmm. when when's typically the best uh, you know time to use that in, in the life cycle of a reef tank? Um, certainly at the beginning. Uh, so that is when we first came out with PNS ProBio, people were asking, they wanted to use this for cycling. Right. And uh, it's not a nitrifier, um, but it does complement nitrifying bacteria in multiple ways, specifically because they inhabit different niches. Uh, most notably, nitrifiers are highly aerobic, hence like a wet dry filter and, you know, things like that. Uh, these, of course, are, they prefer an anaerobic environment. So they live in two totally different areas. Um, and then uh, these guys are heterotrophs where, so unlike nitrifying bacteria, these guys are able to consume organic matter, organic wastes. So um, if you're doing fishless cycling, that's not too important, but as soon as you add fish, it will be, right? Uh, then you have something there in place ready to consume all the fish poop and, and other wastes that are generated once you have all that life in there living. Um, and then lastly, Whereas uh, nitrifying bacteria tend to produce nitrate, um, Rhodosudomonas anyway, one of the two species that is in substrate sauce, this one actually, so this product actually has two species of purple non-sulfur bacteria in it. Um, why? Because it came out after PNS ProBio and I had a second species by then, really no other reason. Um, but uh, I would have put both of these in both products, but it does make PNS ProBio cheaper. Um, which helps keep the cost down, like if you're using it for a food. So again, that one's your general use, uh, the one you'd add all the time. But this one is mainly just for cycling, uh, okay. substrate sauce. Uh, one so one thing about substrate sauce is that it actually had, we put an excess of phosphorus in it. So phosphate, uh, pot uh, dipotassium phosphate. So um, that's because nowadays with fish, you know, uh, uh, fishless cycling, um, with like uh, dry rock and stuff like that, we actually don't have enough phosphorus in the um, system to promote the prolific growth of microbes that we want during the cycling period. So it actually has some supplemental uh, phosphorus in it. I point that out because uh, I wouldn't want people using that in their regular tank if they already have high phosphates. Um, yep. Now I do. No, there are some people that use it for that purpose. It, it really wasn't intended originally to be, you know, used for that for for people that are dosing phosphates. Yeah. Um, it's it's a cycling product, but um, there's no reason you couldn't use it for anything really, um, other than that excess phosphate. And some people now, I guess, that are dosing uh, phosphate may actually prefer to use uh, substrate sauce because it does have that supplemental uh, phosphate in it. The last thing about uh, substrate sauce, though, comparing it to PNS ProBio, is uh, substrate sauce, the cycling product. This is actually cultivated in salt water. So mm -hmm. this is the only product that's salt water specific. And the reason we cultivate it in salt water is so that it acts more quickly when it's added to a system. So it doesn't, it shaves about three days off the lag period, which is basically that. Um, period where bacteria are adapting to their new environment and uh, kind of waking up, so to speak, uh, since people generally want to cycle their tanks as quickly as possible. Yep. Um, we just made something that was saltwater specific so that it would just, you put it in the tank and it just starts going. 
So, all right, now you mentioned uh, PNS Pro Bio, and and that's something more so for an established reef tank, and that's really all the benefits that you were talking about before in terms of being a uh, probiotic, um, providing nutrition for the corals, and also um, helping with uh, with nutrient uh, control. Correct. So let's let's talk mm-hmm. about the frequency of dosing, and and um, you know I think my understanding is that daily would be best. I mean, you did mention that uh, it can get pricey. Right. If uh, you have a larger uh, system, you need to uh, to do daily. If um, if if you if you're on a uh, more of a budget, and and you can't afford to do daily, what would be the next best thing? <laughs> Every other day. Well, or, can if, you can afford you... massive water massive water changes and you know pallets of of lanthanum, you know chloride and and uh, all the other. Th- so the idea is that the, this is a live food. It's more nutritious, so you get more out of the food you add more growth. It's a probiotic. So it eliminates, you know, it'll actually reduce the incidence of disease and, uh, and, and instead of polluting the water, it cleans it. So you think of the price of salt or RO water, all those things combined, it becomes more clear why these are, you know, um, Asian businesses are not known for being, for spending money like drunken sailors, right? Uh, they they use this stuff widely in their hatcheries. Why? Because there's a humongous cost. Uh, 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 there's a, you know advantages from a cost benefit perspective uh, overall. So we actually have some clients that have massive tanks and some coral farms as well. Uh, but uh, they found out very quickly that uh, in term just a as, as a bioremediator, um, just in the terms of savings of time. Uh, you know, if you're say say you say you have like a like a, a a store or an aquaculture facility or something like that, where in addition to the uh, material expenditures, you have wages to pay, mm. and all those other things consume labor. So you know, you factor all that in. All of a sudden, this stuff looks it doesn't look so expensive. Now, if you're home hobbyist, you know it depends. It scales differently, but um, that's why we have like that that PNS grow kit. So if you, uh, the PNS home grow. So if you're a home aquarist, that 8,000 gallon treatment, you know, like, you know, that'll, even, even if you have a two, 300 gallon aquarium and you're feeding every day, that lasts pretty well. And uh, economically, it, it looks pretty good in the end, all things considered. So, so, so talk to us about that. I was, I was asking you some questions before the, uh, the live stream in terms of you need, you need to keep things sterile. You got to have sterilized uh, equipment and all that stuff. What, what does that uh, mean in terms of sterilized equipment? Are you boiling instruments and stuff like that to, uh, to make sure that uh, – or, or using hydrogen peroxide to make sure that things are not going to get contaminated um, you know, while you're culturing this bacteria? Depends on the instrument. So um... – you can actually, so we use heat for the culture medium itself. You boil it to sterilize that. And uh, basically you just have a packet of dry stuff that you add to boiling water. Um, so that's the sterilization. You're just boiling the water. Mm-hmm. Well, the water that is going, that will be the uh, culture medium. Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that, so that is hot. And then you add it to the culture vessel, which is uh, bleached prior. So there's bleach. Um, that, that comes uh, there. Uh, no, you just add like a little bit of bleach okay. and shake it up and then, uh, pour it out. And then we actually don't recommend using tap water to rinse that bleach water out because, uh, so there's like a, you add like a, uh, cap of bleach. It's, it's 
it doesn't have this doesn't have to be exact but you put about like a cap of bleach in a cup of water and shake it up in there just make sure you get all the inner surfaces of the culture vessel which by the way is like a um uh, it's a clear uh collapsible cube um so you just shake it up in there kind of uh, so you just shake it up in there and sterilize the inner surface pour that out and uh just the last few drips you shake them out because we don't rinse that out your tap water has uh tap water lines have um some pretty resilient uh, bugs in there that are spore forming and get, get in and contaminate stuff. So that little that little bit of bleach doesn't do any harm. And then the other, uh, like the anything you stir with or like your uh, funnel and things like that that you may use, um, we just use we suggest peroxide for that because uh, you can just use a put that in a mister and spray it all over then, and then that's. And and so you can't you can't reuse the home grow kits, right? You basically have uh, one home grow kit, mm. and then um, you got to move on after you uh, <laughs> culture the bacteria to get to another kit, correct? Yeah. So um, the reason for that is that the heating the 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 cube actually breaks it down pretty badly. So repeated heating like that isn't good for it. And I wouldn't want someone to burn themselves. That's, that's still two and a half gallons of boiling water that just, you know, um, and then, but the main reason, uh, other than safety, which is a good enough reason is that, uh, the, by, by far the most, uh, money and labor goes into producing the culture medium itself. Mm. So, uh, that little packet of powder contains a whole bunch of different ingredients and and every single packet for each kit is all every single ingredient is measured to the hundredth of a gram individually and that way we don't have settling like we see in our sea salt buckets and stuff like that um, it just ensures really consistent results so things like trace elements or whatever you know double or tripling or, or, or not having it there can make the difference uh, between your culture turning out or not. So um, basically, that's what makes. I remember Jake used Jake Adams used to give me crap about that. Um, it's like I just can't understand why it's so expensive. He's like, it's like it's like these these ingredients are just like a, a buck a piece or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but you have to order them all individually. You measure them, and you you know, it's like, <laughs> and then he kind of got it, but you know. It's it's easy to see that from the outside and go well you know these it wouldn't cost that much to put the kit together but it it does in terms of time if you want them to work optimally they're guaranteed um, we'll replace it I have I've only had one kit that ever out out in the wilderness that that didn't turn out and that's because she tried to put it outside on her porch so the temperature and the lighting both fluctuated wildly. Yeah. Um, I replaced that kit and that one grew perfectly well. So basically what it's what I want is for people to succeed with those. You grow so much, it's like on a on a like a per milliliter basis. It's pretty cheap anyway. So I'd rather focus on success than cost. Uh, Greg Carroll's asking, can you can you microwave it to sterilize it? Is that a possibility versus boiling? Uh, I guess you could. Yeah. I mean if you have a way to to like microwave two and a half gallons at once. Um, if you have a giant yeah, microwave, I guess. I guess it depends on the microwave oven itself. Um, mm -hmm. What was I going to ask? So it, you mentioned uh, temperature and whatnot. Is there a certain temperature that you should be storing this stuff at? Um, so these guys are thermophilic. They actually like really warm temperatures. Uh, the shelf 
like you can keep them on the shelf at like 112, 114 degrees indefinitely. Um, I've a lot of my tests are kind of like accidents that happen. Uh, one time I, uh, one time I accidentally left a bunch in the back of my Jeep in the summer and I looked, I looked up a heat index thing based on the temperature of that day or those days. And uh, it was like over 130 degrees for extended periods of time. Whoa. So I used those bottles to try to make new cultures. And uh, yeah, they grew like nothing had happened to them. So didn't really matter. So as far as shipping and stuff like that in the summer, I wouldn't worry about it. And you can certainly, this is the question most people would be, you can certainly store them at room temp. In fact, that's what I'd recommend. What about the other end of the uh, temperature spectrum? What about shipping in really cold temperatures? Should you not do that? Yeah. So uh, Rhodosudomonas anyway, the strain that we're about to introduce, the new strain, um, that one I have tested for freezing. Um, and it actually survives, uh, it remains viable after freezing and thawing. And again, I used it to cultivate and to make new cultures. And it was almost like nothing happened to it after it had thawed out. So uh, again, yeah, shipping in the winter, it can sh you, you, know, you can come home in January from work and it's literally like an ice cube on your doorstep and It'd be fine. Just thaw it out and resilient <laughs> buggers. What about, um, yeah. what about, how do you know a, a, a culture has crashed? So one cool thing about these bacteria is that they're so conspicuous to the naked eye, right? So, uh, you can see that they're alive because the carotenoids, as soon as they die, they just start breaking down. So the reddish color so, is an indication that that thing is uh, there. What so what what would what color yeah. would it turn if they uh, you know did not survive? Well, it just kind of start going clear. clear. Okay. But if there was a contamination, you might see other colors in there, like uh, uh, especially like uh, black. If you had a, like sulfate reducing bacterium in there, um, and then of course the smell would change too. It's not now these products don't they don't smell they're anaerobic they don't have a pleasant smell as it is um probio has like kind of a weird kombucha fermented smell mm. um but uh which doesn't it dissipates as soon as you know you open it to the air or put it in a tank or whatever but uh but if it, if it spoils um you're gonna smell that more like uh like a spoiled uh, food smell lovely death death <laughs> death smell for lack of a better word um, um so sal uh, spinato uh, made a comment that uh, having used the uh, ProBio for a couple of years now, I can vouch for the quality of this product and how amazing it is at eating detritus. And um, so I wanted to kind of follow up on that comment and ask you about, uh, you, you mentioned cyanobacteria. Are, are the, uh, is Pro, ProBio potentially something that can be used to help um, prevent cyano or help eliminate cyano because of the effect it has on detritus? Yeah, I would say potentially. I haven't seen any um, uh, interesting. I saw a study where they use these bacteria like in a larger water body to clean up after a cyano bloom, uh, to clean up everything that was left after it was dead. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, so it makes sense, though, because uh, the cyano are actually still, they're also susceptible to the um, antibiotics that these guys produce, uh, the streptomycin, canamycin. And they have similar niches, right? They're both phototrophs. Um, so they're, they're both going to be competing not just for space, but specifically for space where they can capture light. 
and cyanobacteria are also um, uh, heterotrophs. So they will also compete for organic matter. And that's kind of the most important part of that, um, really. So like in a sand bed or something where you tend to see cyano growing right at the top of a sand bed, uh, they're, they're capturing all the organic, the dissolved organics that are coming up from the sand bed. Um, if you have, uh, now these guys would live somewhat below in the sand bed, right? Because they, they like a more anaerobic environment, but they would theoretically uh, intercept a lot of that uh, upflow, if you will, of organic matter and limit the amount of, or, of uh, food that the cyano get. In fact, if you, I don't know if you know what a, um, a Winogradsky column is, but a lot of us may remember in like high school biology class, you have these tall, clear columns and you pack them with mud and, uh, and then put them in the light on, in a window or something, you cover them, mm -hmm. and yep. then you'd see all the different colors form. Uh, and what you'd see on the top is like something, you know, it would be green or so you'd have like algae or cyanobacteria on the top. And then right below that, you start seeing like, uh, like a purpley red, which is uh, purple non-sulfur bacteria, such as these. And then you might get purple sulfur bacteria underneath that. Those guys are uh, obligate anaerobes, so they live deeper down. And what they do is they actually eat the um, sulfur that, now I'm, now I'm going off subject a little bit, but this is cool. They, they eat uh, the sulfur that comes up from deeper down, that black layer, the salts, uh, sulfate-reducing bacteria. Um, and uh, we're actually cultivating some of those that I harvested from the wild. So mm -hmm. that's a future product we get a chance to mention later. But anyway, I went way off subject there. Uh, I can't remember what, what we were, the original. Uh, I, I think the, uh, my, my original question was the, uh, the use of the products to help uh, prevent or clean up uh, cyano. Oh, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, so, so because of where they lie in the, uh, the uh, substrate, they will actually um, consume a lot of that organic matter and thus compete with uh, um, cyanobacteria for food. What about I, I also of, believe. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, oh, it's just uh, and, and also the uh, antibiotics potentially could inhibit to cyano. What about the uh, constant use of um, activated carbon? You know that stuff um, helps remove organics in the uh, in the water column. What What are your thoughts in terms of using activated carbon twenty four seven on a reef tank? Is it uh, good, bad, indifferent about it? Both. Yeah. Both, I guess. I mean, if you have some people, they'll say it removes good stuff as well. So I think overall it's good. I, I like using it. I use it all the time. Uh, uh, the one cool, you know, you can actually use the, that stuff with these bacteria. Um, I've seen some stuff in aquaculture and in soil stuff too. I've seen people, because biochar, right? Uh, aquachar is, I guess, is uh, the, how we may be familiar with biochar in the aquarium industry. Um, but uh, biochar is a certain type of activated carbon. And anyway, uh, these bacteria were shown to really like growing on biochar for some weird reason. And uh, I think they like the, the porosity. So once, so the carbon will actually attract a lot of uh, organic substances, but uh, the, the matrix of the, the, the chunk of, of carbon makes a really ideal habitat for these bacteria in the first place. And then once they walk in, there's already a food source. So um, yeah, it was like a one paper. It was like a soil science thing, but 
this, uh, these uh, rhizobial bacteria, the, the general group that Brotopseudomonas belongs to, was they grew, they, they, and some, back, some types of bacteria actually went down on biochar, but these guys, their populations increased um, by about 11% uh, compared to, it was like Hagen Biomax or some kind of uh, uh, centered glass medium. So yeah, carbon is a, uh, you know, you can use it for both or you can use them together actually. But as I mentioned, one cool thing about these bacteria compared to a lot of other heterotrophs is that they consume yellowing compounds. So if you have an algae scrubber or something like that, you may not even need as much carbon. Uh, so these bacteria may actually reduce your need for activated carbon in some instances. What about um, what about carbon dosing with your products? You know, carbon dosing is uh, can accelerate the uh, the bacteria in a system in terms of having it proliferate at a very rapid rate. It can be uh, quite dangerous depending on on um, you know how it's utilized. But um, is that something that people um, can do with your products in terms of carbon dosing to kind of help the bacteria multiply even more? Yeah, depends on the carbon source. They don't really like alcohol. So ethanol wouldn't do much. Mm. Um, uh, uh, vinegar, on the other hand, they love acetate. So vinegar would be a great one. Um, the only issue, so uh, if you're using our bacteria, you kind of eliminate the need to carbon dose, right? The reason we carbon dose in the first place is to increase the population of, uh, of uh, bacteria so that they consume more of the nitrate and phosphate. But if you just put the bacteria in there, um, you can you can see that reduction of nitrate and phosphate without the added risk of uh, of a massive bloom of aerobic bacteria, right? So um, when I worked in stores, we sold a lot of uh, of uh, you know, no pox, no PO, however you right. want to call that, and uh, a lot of people had uh, die-offs in their tank because. The mindset is, well, I have a lot of nitrates or a lot of phosphates, so I'm going to use a lot of this stuff. And then they have a massive bloom, and then it's mostly aerobic um, bacteria that consume it. And they can, you know, all of a sudden the fish are gasping at the top and corals are closed up. So that stuff can be kind of risky. Um, and, and, yeah, and it's like if, you, if you're dosing bacteria, you eliminate the need to do that in the first place. Rather than trying to grow those bacteria, you just put them in there, and they'll do their job. In so doing... These bacteria, because of their ability to degrade cellulose and other uh, recalcitrant organic wastes, these guys will, instead of like the, the, the vinegar or, or, or vodka or whatever, they'll actually eat your freaking detritus, mm. <laughs> right? So do you want to add a bunch of, I just drink the vodka and let them eat detritus, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a good way to do it. Um, Chris from ACI, Chris Meckley is asking, what do you know about the types of bacteria that utilize UV or infrared photons proliferate? Um, UV? I don't know. I, I, so these guys can use near UV. I don't, I don't know of any uh, bacteria that, like for photosynthesis anyway, I don't know of any bacteria that can utilize uh, UV. But um, I know he's looked into that. Hey, Chris. <laughs> I know he's looked into that a lot. Uh, um, the, some, you know, some kind of mysterious benefits of, UV. of, uh, measured uses of, of UV. Uh, I can't really speak to that, like with anything I know about these bacteria, 
but I assume they don't like it just because of the sorts of environments that they live in. They usually aren't exposed to a lot of UV. Um, hey, Rich Colombo, um, back to the uh, carbon source, uh, but won't a carbon source grow their bacteria strains that might be in the tank? Yeah, so if you're carbon dosing, you are... Um, you're promoting the growth of all kinds of heterotrophs, right? And some of them may be bad. That's that's just another that's another uh, mm. potential disadvantage to carbon dosing is you may actually be promoting the growth of a disease organism. So, uh, you know, if you're using a bottled bacterium, you don't have to experience, say, like the 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 drop in pH and all the other drop in a DO, all the other bad things associated with carbon dosing. Um, you add, you just add the bacteria rather than trying to grow it in the tank. It's safer, and uh, you know what you're what you're putting in there. You you know you're not going to be growing a bunch of vibrio or something like that. Right. Um, I was going to ask you. All right, so you you you'd sent me a bunch of pictures, uh, Kenneth, of some some um, different uh, bacteria. Did you want to run through that stuff? Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, I can't. I think I remember the order, thankfully, because I don't see them on the screen. But I got. Uh, um, I got the. Uh, so you, you you gave me like nine different ones. I, I, there is no yeah. freaking way I'm gonna be able to pronounce these. So I, I get to <laughs> say number one. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is Rhodopseudomonas palustris. Uh, that is uh, rod shaped, yeah. or yeah. you may say hot dog shaped, uh, and that for that guy. Um, the individual cell, uh, they vary depending on, the cell shape varies depending on environmental conditions, but um, that's like the individual rhodopseudomonas, a couple microns long, so really tiny. Um, and uh, the number two, So actually, what's, what's the, uh, what's the uh, significance of that one? Well, that's the one that, uh, so it, again, that one is, that, mostly when I've been talking about food, that one is an excellent, excellent, excellent food. food. Okay. Yeah, it, it actually also lives inside of corals in natural coral reefs, and is the nitrogen fixer. Okay. All right. So it provides uh, nitrogen to the zooxanthellae and consumes coral wastes from within, and protects the coral from vibrio and other bad bugs. Okay. And so, what's the second one uh, all about? What uh, What is its purpose? Uh, number so the number two is actually also Rhodopseudomonas palustris, but I wanted to point out that uh, they form these things called rosettes. Oh, right, okay. So right, so it looks does it look like a big yeah, ball? Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So they attach to themselves at their polar ends, and uh, they make like these big chunks or whatnot, um, which uh, is kind of cool because when they're uh, in the plankton, that makes them a bigger size, so it makes them uh, more available to oh broader variety of, uh, of bacterial planktivores, um, different types of filter feeders. Um, and then when, so number three uh, is uh, a lot of those rosettes uh, connect together and then they produce biofilms. Okay. Uh, when you get to that point, that's when you're gonna have a lasting population of these guys in your tank. So if you have some marine pure or something like that, you saturate it um, really well so that uh, they can get in there and, you know, they can maybe beat out other bacteria by number. Uh, and also they create that zone of inhibition. It's what they call when, you know, they, together when there's a lot of cells, they can produce enough antibiotics that it isn't diluted, right? Then it's 
more concentrated and it kills off other stuff around them. Uh, and that's when they make the biofilms and then they're more lasting. And that's what not everybody sees in their tank. Uh, because again, like we were saying, they don't always survive long-term in the aquarium. It depends on the aquarium conditions. But if you promote their growth, they'll eventually form those biofilms and they become much more resistant after that because uh, they're really strong in, in uh, numbers. Uh, so the young, um, the young ones, the new cells are the, so the, the biofilm, those mature cells are called mother cells. It's the daughter cells that are motile. So they're the ones that butt off and they're flagellated and they swim around in the water column. And then they become uh, uh, an in-house, an in-tank uh, source of food uh, for your corals. So they're literally feeding your corals and sponges, bivalves, tube worms, uh, things like that 24 seven. Um, the next one I think is rhodospirulum and that was the, uh, that was the number two. So I think that's slide number four. Yep. That's the corkscrew looking guy. Yep. Um, not as good of an image because rhodospirulum is hard to photograph, uh, get a good resolution because they're corkscrew shape, you know, they go in and out of field, uh, so much. Um, but obviously, roto, you know, so rhodospirulum spirulum just means rosy spiral, referring to the color um, of that bacterium. Those guys are pretty cool because they spend a lot of time in the water column. So they're particularly good as a um, planktonic food. And they have their own uh, different types of antimicrobial substances that they produce. Uh, when you use those with uh, rhodopseudomonas uh, in tandem, they actually have their own, they have their own niches. There's a paper they looked at the populations of those two species on a Caribbean reef, and they found that they actually inhabit different parts of the reef. Um, Rhodopseudomonas occurs closer in, and Rhodospirulum occurs more um, outside the the reef crest. So it's kind of cool I, <laughs> that they you know you can put those both in a tank, and then they'll find the you know the niche. That, you know, you can, at least one of the two, right? It includes, increases your chances that at least one of the two will survive depending on the conditions in your tank. I think the next one then is I actually have a, a slide. It's a wide shot of the same bacteria. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that one is the one that, so that just shows uh, rhodospirulum, but how huge it can get. Okay. So that doesn't form the rosettes, um, but because it gets so freaking huge, really uh, long anyway. Um, it makes it, uh, it makes it a nicer bite size for bacterial planktivores, uh, when they capture it, um, just cause they're, they're such they can get to be such long cells. And again, they spend so much time in the water column. Gotcha. Uh, I think the next one then is, uh, actually have a, that's a rosette of Rhodopseudomonas palustris. Number six. Yeah. There's okay. a, there's like another big like ball, right? A rosette. Uh, so that's, a Rhodopseudomonas, which is the one in ProBio, and then uh, uh, and then it also and then it's got the uh, the spiral one next to it, yeah. which is uh, Rhodospirulum, and that's the one that is in addition to Rhodopseudomonas in substrate sauce, the cycling product. So just for size comparison, yeah, right? The rosette, the rosette's like a big ball, but you know the Rhodospirulum is super long and and windy. So again, like it, it gives a lot more opportunities to filter feeders because some of them are pretty specialized in how they, yeah. they capture particles. Yep. And, yeah. um, the next one, number seven is, um, spheroids. 
Spheroides, yeah. So that's not steroids. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's Rhodobacter. Rhodobacter. Rhodobacter is a massive, massive family. Not all of them are purple non-sulfur bacteria. In fact, some of them are notoriously evil, and some of them are really, really evil bacteria. um, Evil, evil to corals, Um, and then uh, some of them are actually like critically important to corals ecologically. Um, so it's a huge varied family. Again, not all of them are even photosynthetic. It should it should be split actually that family uh, into maybe two three different families. But anyway, um, so that's Rhodobacter. Uh, originally, we thought it was a different, a closely related species. Uh, originally, I was um, calling that uh, Capsulatus, but part of that had to do with so again, like I mentioned, these guys grow. They have different shapes sometimes depending on how they're grown, and then. Uh, Actually, Aquabiomics helped resolve that one for me because, uh, again, that's one of the species that we isolated. Yeah. Uh, very closely related, spheroides. But uh, th- the difference is very significant because originally I was just selling that in the kits, the home grow kits, to freshwater people uh, because uh, Capsulatus is almost is pretty much exclusively freshwater. But that was really exciting to do it. We did a test growing it in after I, after I got the aquabiomics test back and found out it was actually spheroides. Um, I grew it and I tested it in salt water and it actually grew really well. Uh, It's quite beautiful. So that's really nice because I know I haven't studied it much, but spheroides uh, also produces compounds that are known to um, inhibit Vibrio. Mm. So there are implications with that species for, again, like, uh, RTN and other such diseases. Gotcha. Just not something we've looked at really closely yet. Uh, and the uh, the next one, the uh, denitrificans close up. <laughs> yeah, that's Roseobacter. Roseobacter. So that's okay. yeah, that's the only one of the, the only one of the only species in these slides that I don't sell. Uh, I have cultivated Roseobacter, but it's it's been really challenging to grow on a commercial scale. That's the only purple bacterium um, that I've grown that is actually uh, aerobic. Um, but that one is massive. That's that's actually in Rhodobacteriaceae or whatever. The Rhodobacter, same family. Uh, but that one that one's huge. It's like in some environments, uh, the Roseobacter clade makes up like 20% of the biomass hmm. of some marine environments. It's just huge. Uh, as its name implies, it's a denitrifier. But uh, one of the things it's really, uh, really good at is uh, just uh, metabolizing uh, DMSP, which I was mentioning earlier. Remember, that's the one that, that's a substance that um, uh, corals release when they're stressed. Um, right. I think that, that so uh, again, like if you were um, trying to prevent uh, Vibrio from attacking corals, uh, that would be another really good one. But just in terms of like cleaning the water and um, acting as a real nice uh, probiotic. Gotcha. So we're looking at we're looking at that one, but just haven't had success. So not good at growing all of them. Yeah, learning process. So the last one is a uh, is an unknown one. Yeah. So um, this month it'll be a year. Uh, I, we made a expedition to Polynesia, and uh, we collected samples, um, sediment samples and coral mucus samples from three different sites, all parietes, healthy parietes. 
uh, colonies, like great big, like, you know, half a Volkswagen car wow. kind of size boulder and, uh, and have them analyzed for the microbiome just to see what was in them and what the reef looked like. And, um, I also wanted to bring home some, uh, some bugs as souvenirs and see if I could cultivate them, see what I could get. And, um, it turns out that the, there were no rhodosunomonas there. There was no rhodospirillum there. Hmm. Why? Well, the reason is, uh, so going back to like, people say these bacteria won't grow in my tank. So why would I use them? Uh, so, it's uh so we were uh, we spent most of our time on Mo'orea and uh actually spoke if, you, if any of you know coral gardeners they are a coral restoration group there and uh i met with their head biologist and she was explaining to me um why there was all this algae growing on the reef the the, the reef is actually um somewhat degraded at this point because of uh, pineapple plantations mm. And because of the fact that they only they probably treat less than um, ten percent of their sewage, so the water is pretty um, eutrophic. There's a lot of nutrients in the water. I wish I should have brought that with me. I can't remember. We did all the water tests, but the nitrate was comparable to what you'd see in an in an aquarium, rather than a healthy natural coral reef. Where we're talking about on a coral reef, nitrate actually on average, according to one paper I looked at, was like. 0.1 to it's one low. micromole. Yeah. Very low. We're talking yeah. like, so that's like 0.06 to 0.006 parts per million nitrate. There's no need to add nitrate to your reef tank unless you're trying to grow algae. One of my gripes, another story, I won't even go there. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so that you shouldn't have nitrate. You don't want nitrate. Uh, Susan Telly can't even use uh, nitrate or at, at the very best. They don't prefer, they prefer ammonia to nitrate. Um, which is why nitrogen fixing bacteria are important. But anyway, um, so we went to this reef, tried to collect the the bacteria I, I want, the, or at least see that they were there. I wanted my own strains of Rhodosunomonas or whatever, and they weren't growing there. Um, well, that's interesting because they should be there, but those, but because of all the nitrate in the water, um, other types of bacteria are out competing those bacteria. Hmm. Right. So nor further north in Polynesia, there was a study done actually looking at Rhodosudomonas on a reef that had been polluted. Uh, I actually found this after the fact uh, on, online, but they looked at a, a Hawaiian reef somewhere that had been polluted and uh, they found Rhodosudomonas growing per normal offshore. But in that immediate area, I don't know if it was outside some golf courses on Waikiki or whatever. Hmm. I don't know. I can't remember where in Hawaii, but. Uh, where the nitrate was elevated, those uh, rhodosudomonas was uh, absent or scarce, and the reason wasn't that the, they can't live there. They can they can they can use nitrate themselves, but they have a distinct advantage over other bacteria in a nitrogen limited environment because they can fix nitrogen. They don't need nitrate or ammonia in the water. They just take nitrogen gas, right? The atmosphere is eighty percent nitrogen gas. It's there for the taking, but. You just have to be able to turn it into ammonia and very back, few bacteria can do that. So if you remove those from that environment, then you're also removing the benefit those bacteria have to the corals. And all of a sudden you have all this nitrate in the water. You're also encouraging, there was sargassum growing all over. Mm. I, I didn't even know you'd see that in Tahiti, right? I always pictured it being like crystal clear water yeah. and the water was more or less clear, but there was so much benthic algae mm. and the corals really were, um, hurting you could you could see that interesting um, 
Yeah. So I uh, learned a lot there, but I did bring back some uh, incidentally <laughs> uh, bacteria that would be uh, more appropriate for the typical aquarium because the water there was more like the typical aquarium. So I, I grew those in, um, and this is relating to that picture you're referring there, but um, I, uh, I grew samples of sediment in, uh, I put samples of sediment in um, growth media, the same growth media that we use to grow um, PNS substrate sauce. Yep. So again, a saltwater uh, growth medium for uh, heterotrophs. And I was able to grow um, various types of, uh, of uh, phototrophic bacteria. So they, it looks like we have, um, so we had the initial cultures looked at by aquabiomics, but now that I'm, there's a process where you eliminate uh, things and we're getting down to where we have, it's kind of cool, there's a co-culture, so two bacteria that, sometimes you'll have like what are called guilds. And uh, this is important for people that use uh, bottled products. Sometimes, you know, you get a single species in a product and they may not persist because they rely on other species to survive. They don't always compete. Sometimes they, they work together to survive in groups. So in this case, I, I try to get like a, a functional group of bacteria, a, a guild, if you will, um, to live in this medium. And uh, now it's going on a year. I've just make, been making successive cultures and whatever can't live in it has just been eliminated and I can't go back to Tahiti to get it. But what we have left now is a, is a purple sulfur bacteria, not non-sulfur, salt, purple sulfur bacteria. So they're the ones... By the way, if you're wondering why purple non-sulfur bacteria, that's a stupid name, right? <laughs> but it's just because purple, purple sulfur bacteria were discovered first, right? They're the ones that eat hydrogen sulfide, right? So uh, the, the purple sulfur bacteria are similar, but they don't have that ability. In fact, you know, like most other things, they can't actually handle a lot of sulfide. But purple sulfide, sulfur bacteria like it because they actually use it uh, as part of their metabolic processes. So... Anyway, we have those guys in there when we have green sulfur bacteria that also um, metabolize uh, hydrogen, uh, uh, metabolize sulfide. So why is that important? Well, if I can continue to cultivate these bacteria, we will have a natural wild uh, coral reef bacteria. A lot of people hmm. that are just for like, they're like soil bacteria or they're just freshwater or whatever. These are from an actual coral reef. And these particular bacteria are ap uh, applicable for um, uses in, say, not everyone has a deep sand bed in their aquarium, but maybe they have one in their uh, refugium. Or maybe they have so much rock in their tank that they actually have anoxic pockets where you can get hydrogen sulfide. Well, uh, these particular bacteria would actually consume that hydrogen sulfide. So... Just a, another thing that you can add to broaden your microbiome and make something more close to nature. There's a there's a lot of ingredients you could add to the uh, to the uh, to the pot there, so to speak. Fascinating stuff, dude. I um, it's it's really quite a. Uh, I, I never I never had an idea that you'd actually go on a mission to uh, collect certain bacteria across the uh, the world. So that's uh, that's pretty neat. Kind of blows my mind. So, so Kenneth, man, I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap up the live stream. Any uh, any final thoughts before we uh, close this out tonight? Uh, yeah, first of all, you know, I'd like to thank everybody who supported us so far. I wouldn't be able to sit <laughs> uh, sit around reading about bacteria all day, um, which is actually something I like. Uh, 
if it weren't for all you people that um, support us. So I appreciate that very much so. Um, and uh, to any manufacturers out there, actually, I'd say, you know, reach out. You know, we don't, this is what I do. I just, I cultivate bacteria, but there's so many, for example, anybody that makes uh, equipment, you know, there's room for um, a plankton reactor, you know, a photosynthetic plankton reactor. Um, Julian Sprung wrote about the pot, those possibilities like 18 years ago, mm. right? With Rhodosudomonas making a reactor for something like that. Uh, and nobody's tackled it since. So, you know, I'd be happy to work with someone um, who would want to, you know, collaborate on something like that. Uh, foods. Um, these are, by the way, like a good fish food uh, or, or a fish probiotic. They um, occur in nature in fish guts, including saltwater fish. Um, they've been shown in captivity to increase uh, disease resistance and growth rates, things like that. So, um, and I mentioned earlier here that they can be frozen. So, you know, anybody out there that manufactures foods, if you wanted to add a probiotic, you can reach out to us um, for something like that. But yeah, uh, in addition, just to everything, all the anecdotal evidence that uh, um, our, our supporters have provided, um, you know, every, anything that uh, I could do to work with uh, other manufacturers to uh, kind of improve how these uh, bacteria are used would be awesome. And, and uh, hobbyists can get your home grow kits on your uh, website, um, hydrospace.com. Um, Is that the, um, the web address? It's our web address, but we don't um, uh, visibly uh, advertise that product since I pulled the – we don't actually have a store now that we have a, a distributor. Okay. Um, so – but uh, you can just – you can get it through the back door if you just uh, Google PNS Home Grow. So that's PNS space Home Grow just GRO and uh, you can order it that way. Um, it'll come right up. And uh, by the way, um, if you're an LFS, uh, you can get our products from our, we have an exclusive US distributor and that is Aquarium Supplied Distribution, ASD. Uh, Chad and Orlando are really great guys if you haven't met them at a show or something yet. So um, I'd encourage reaching out to them, not just for hydro-based products, but for all kinds of stuff. Um, and then, uh, stores, uh, there's, uh, many, many places online and, and then maybe some of your, uh, favorite LFS is already carry it, but, um, bulk reef supply, saltwateraquarium.com, premium aquatics, uh, more recently, um, unique corals, champion lighting, uh, a lot of people uh, have it available now. Yeah. So, cool. um, at retail. All right, Kenneth, Kenneth, like I said, man, fascinating stuff um, and and um, always uh, a lot of nuggets to, to digest tonight, but uh, appreciate all the uh, the insight and the expertise from you. And um, also want to thank both uh, Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for supporting the live stream, sponsoring the live stream, and all you folks out there for tuning in. And I also want to give a big thank Thank you to Paul, who is the moderator as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to this hobby. Also want to let you know that all episodes of Wrapping with Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next live stream is actually going to be a live coral sale on YouTube this uh, Thursday at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I got some kick-ass uh, premium SPS frags that are going to be up for grabs, including a couple of uh, 
some rare Tyree purple monster frags. So uh, I know I know got some folks pining for those uh, frags. My next uh, wrap of the reef bum live stream will be next Tuesday, October 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Adam Sutherland from Frag Garage. So that should be another great show. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests, visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. Until next time, be safe and be well. Later.